The new Prime Minister of Britain has put forth a tax plan that shook global financial markets, while now Liz Truss has done an about-face and pledged to raise the corporate tax rate. She was, has also fired her finance minister. The U-turn and what it's going to mean for worldwide markets coming up on this Friday, October 14th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also had tax issues on a local scale. We'll take a closer look at question one on the Massachusetts ballot. The so-called millionaire's tax would make higher earners pay a higher rate of income taxes. The two largest grocery store chains in the U.S. would become one under Kroger's plans to buy Albertson's Market. Regulators are expected to be all over the potential move. And what receiving a MacArthur Fellowship means for one of this year's recipients and his writing. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol last year wants to question former President Donald Trump. Lawmakers unanimously voted to subpoena him. Members are defending that decision today. Democratic Representative Zoe Lufgren of California tells NPR's Here and Now about the message Trump sends if he does not comply with the subpoena. If he comes in and and can be publicly accountable for his actions, that would be, I think, a good thing. Uh, if he refuses to do that, I think that tells people something else about uh, the former president. He's hiding. In his response to the panel, Trump maintains his campaign was the victim of election fraud in the 2020 presidential election. But courts and election officials, including Republicans in Georgia and other states, concluded there was no evidence to support the one-term president's claims. And even members of Trump's inner circle acknowledged the Biden-Harris ticket was the legitimate winner. Russian President Vladimir Putin says this week's wave of deadly rocket attacks on Ukraine is coming to an end. He says Russia's military had already hit the majority of its intended targets, so no need, in his words, for further massive airstrikes on Ukraine. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines has more. Speaking to Russian journalists at a regional summit in neighboring Kazakhstan, Putin also insisted an effort to mobilize some 300,000 reservists to fight in Ukraine was nearing completion, and that he presently saw no need for expanding the mobilization drive. Putin defended sending new troops into battle, saying they're needed to secure overstretched Russian lines against a Ukrainian counteroffensive. This week, pro-Kremlin nationalists re-upped criticism of the defense ministry's handling of the mobilization effort after several newly mobilized soldiers were killed in action soon after their arrival in Ukraine. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. On the Mediterranean island nation of Malta, two brothers have been sentenced to 40 years in jail for setting off a car bomb that killed the country's most prominent journalists in 2017. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Athens. The brothers were supposed to face the first day of their trial today, but unexpectedly reversed their pleas. George and Alfred DiGiorgio had entered not guilty pleas earlier in the day, but when the trial began, they unexpectedly pleaded guilty. The judge sentenced them to 40 years in prison. The two brothers were charged with detonating a car bomb on October 16, 2017 that killed Daphne Caruana Galizia. She was an investigative reporter who exposed extensive corruption in Malta. Her sons have been on a quest for justice since her murder. They have accused high-ranking members of Malta's ruling Labour Party of involvement in the assassination plot. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Athens. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren says new leadership is needed to oversee the MBTA. She made the comments at a Senate hearing on the T she chaired today in Boston. Witnesses included T General Manager Steve Poftak and the chair of the state's Public Utilities Department. WBUR's Simone Rios has more. Warren cited a federal report that faults the T and the state agency that oversees it, the DPU, for a failure to prioritize safety and implement earlier federal mandates. And again, I quote, MBTA's executive management does not consistently ensure its decisions related to safety risks are based on safety data analysis or documented facts. Simple translation, when it comes to safety, the T's management is just making it up. Poftak testified the federal mandates will take more time to implement, and Poftak would not put a timeline on when Orange Line travel times will return to expected levels in the wake of this summer's shutdown. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. The Middlesex District Attorney's Office is reviewing criminal cases that involve a Woburn police officer who's being connected to the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Officer John Donnelly is on leave after the city learned of allegations that he might have helped plan and attend the Charlottesville rally five years ago. That rally resulted in the death of a counter-protester. Donnelly has not responded to requests for comment. Boston civil rights pioneer Jean McGuire has released a statement for the first time since she was attacked in Franklin Park. The 91-year-old victim, McGuire, says the community must unite and empower children through learning. The statement ends with McGuire saying, I love you all and I will see you soon. McGuire was stabbed multiple times Tuesday night as she was walking her dog. There have been no arrests. Clouds and some quick shots of sunshine this afternoon. Clearing skies tonight, falling to the upper 40s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny. Highs in the upper 60s. Sunday, more sunshine in the mid-60s. That's where it is right now. 66 degrees in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. And Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Britain's prime minister is in a familiar position today, trouble. This time, it's Liz Truss, who's been in the job fewer than six weeks. Truss had to reverse a pledge on tax cuts after financial markets went haywire. At a press conference this afternoon, reporters repeatedly asked her if she would resign. She refused. For more on the latest turmoil in British politics, we turn to NPR's London correspondent, Frank Langford. Hi, Frank. Hi, Sasha. Frank, this was a very quick U-turn. How did Liz Truss get herself in this position? Remind us. Yeah, she ran on a platform of massive tax cuts that she, in fact, didn't really have a way to fund. And so financial markets became extremely worried about rising uh, UK government debt. The pound collapsed. People here saw the financial turmoil as really threatening things like their pensions, raising mortgage interest rates. So this was a crisis, Sasha, that actually was very palpable for the ordinary person. And today, Liz Truss fired her Treasury Secretary, even though he she had worked with him on this tax cut plan. They worked on it together. And she reversed course, saying she would actually raise corporate taxes. This is what she said. I have acted decisively today because my priority is ensuring our country's economic stability. I want to be honest, this is difficult, 
But we will get through this storm. Frank, what does this backtracking do to her party, the Conservative Party? Well, you know, this was the thing that helped get her elected by the rank and file in the party. And I think it really undermines the Conservative Party's brand, which has been economic competence. And you combine that with the scandals of Boris Johnson. Of course, he, he attended these parties during COVID lockdown, had to re resign back in July. And Conservatives are now 30 percentage point behind the opposition Labour Party with an election expected to come in 2024. I was talking to a guy named Tony Travers. He's a professor of government at the London School of Economics. And he doesn't think trust is long for uh, number 10 Downing Street. I think it's going to be very difficult for her to survive. And the reason for that is that many of her MPs, possibly almost all of them now, fear they might lose their seats at the next general election. And that is an incredibly powerful driver of their behaviour. The Conservative Party in Britain has been in power a long time, but it's really yeah. been churning through prime ministers lately. Why don't they last long? Well, I, I think that you know the old British brand of government was um, solid but a bit boring, and we've had these four prime ministers really since 2016, and that started with a Brexit vote. I don't think that's an accident. Uh, Brexit split the country and also split the Conservative Party, and the party's focus probably in some ways more on fighting each other than and less on govern governing. And, you know, for years, the, the Conservatives didn't really have to worry too much about competition from the opposition Labour Party. This is how uh, Tony Travers put it. The fact that Labour had an unelectable leader for five years in Jeremy Corbyn encouraged a less disciplined approach to politics by the Conservatives. And that meant more infighting and maybe to some degree some of the behaviour we saw in Boris Johnson's government. Britain has an important part on the world stage. So how does this affect its effort to keep its place there? Well, I think all the turmoil over the last few years has really forced the country to look inward more, and it certainly damages global reputation. Um, but I don't think in the short run this turmoil really is changing international policy. There is a political consensus here on the war in Ukraine. Um, the UK has been one of the biggest arms suppliers. And I was just out in the south of England this week watching British soldiers training a couple of hundred Ukrainian soldiers to go back and fight the Russians back in the south and in the east of Ukraine. That's NPR's Frank Langford in London. Frank, thank you. Good to talk to you, Sasha. Women and girls in Iran are still not backing down. Coming up on a month after Masa Amini died in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police, Iranians continue to protest in the streets of cities and towns across the country. Iranian-American writer Reza Aslan has been pondering the moment. In a new piece for Time magazine, Aslan writes about women throwing off their veils, cropping their hair, and standing shoulder to shoulder with men to fight. Here's the twist. Aslan is writing there not about today, but about a different moment in Iranian history, one most Americans have probably never heard of, the Constitutional Revolution of 1905. He argues it's the closest parallel to what is happening in Iran today. Reza Aslan, welcome. Thank you for having me. So tell me briefly, what was happening in Iran around 1905, 1906? Who was protesting and why? In 1905, a band of educated young revolutionaries poured out onto the streets of Iran, backed by the clergy and by the business interests, in order to demand the creation of a constitution that would outline the rights and privileges of all citizens, and of course, the creation of a parliament, an elected parliament that would be able to pass legislation and in general, 
curtailed the absolute authority of the Shah. This was the first democratic revolution in the Middle East, and it was the first of three major revolutions that Iran has experienced over the course of the 20th century. And in each one of those revolutions, just like today, women were at the forefront. But you argue, you come away from this and say, there's kind of two main lessons that you think we could learn from what was happening in Iran during the Constitutional Revolution more than a century ago. The first is about that you need a diverse coalition of people for anything to change. Explain. That's right. People who've been watching Iran or who understand Iranian history know that there have been countless uprisings and popular protests over the last hundred years or so. But the ones that had been able to elevate from protests to revolutions were the ones that were able to bring in a coalition of the educated middle class the clerics who maintain an enormous amount of control and power over the pious masses in Iran. And I'm talking not about the grand ayatollahs, but sort of the the mid-level clerics and the seminary students. And then most crucially, the business class, the merchant class, the bazaari merchants. In 1906, in 1953, and in 1979, these three groups were able to come together. And that coalition is what ultimately resulted in radical change in the Iranian government. The other big takeaway that you see is what the rest of the world does, how the rest of the world is watching and responding. What parallels do you see there? Well, of course, in 1906, people came from all over the world with guns and bombs and actually physically joined the revolution. That's not really, of course, possible today, nor is it advisable. But the truth is is that we have something even more powerful than guns and weapons. We have our voices. We have the ability to make sure that the cries for freedom that are coming out of Iran are actually heard and responded to by insisting that the Iranian government pay a price for this brutal crackdown. As an Iranian, what's it been like to watch everything happening today in Iran from, from outside, from afar? I've been watching Iran for 40 years now. Uh, I've been studying, you know, Iranian history going back all the way to the dawn of the 20th century. And I can tell you with confidence, I've never seen anything like this before. The, the power of these young women, girls, teenagers, children, frankly, who are willing to put their bodies in front of bullets in order to say that we cannot have any more of this. The only thing that will satisfy us is the downfall of this regime. I don't see how that force can be stopped regardless of the power or the violence of the Islamic Republic. That's the Iranian-American writer Reza Aslan. His new book is An American Martyr in Persia. Reza Aslan, thanks. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. A different kind of deal may be coming to a supermarket near you. America's two largest grocery chains want to merge as Kroger plans to buy Albertsons. And with soaring food prices, this consolidation should face tough scrutiny from federal regulators. And Paris' Alina Selyuk reports. Put together, Kroger and Albertsons have nearly 5,000 stores, including Safeway, Ralph's, Harris Teeter, Fred Meyer. They employ over 700,000 workers. Their merger, worth almost $25 billion, is colossal, says Russell Redman, managing editor at Supermarket News. It basically will shake up the playing field. Grocery shopping has faced big changes. You no longer have to go to a traditional supermarket to stock up. There's big box stores, online delivery, even those fast-growing dollar stores. 
The reigning king of food in America is Walmart, which sells more groceries than Kroger and Albertsons combined. The two have now decided to join their regional forces into a national giant. We've never in the U.S. had a national supermarket chain. Rahul Sharma is a retail analyst at Neve Capital. He says in many ways that didn't seem to matter. U.S. grocery markets are pretty local and in any given region, smaller competitors tend to grab a sizable share. Historically, that's been more than enough. Neither Kroger nor Albertsons is a struggling retailer. They did really well in the pandemic. But Redmond points to something else that ballooned in the pandemic, online grocery shopping, which demands big investments from Kroger and Albertsons. Right now, the online model is not profitable. So you need the bigger scale to kind of build out that network and start bringing this model closer to profitability. Grocery chains operate on razor-thin margins, so Kroger and Albertsons argue that together they'll be able to slice costs and maybe negotiate better deals with suppliers. They promise to pass on some savings to shoppers and to their workers, though critics are not buying that. They worry also about the impact on smaller rivals, and first, the companies have to convince federal regulators. They're going to face a great deal more skepticism about the potential benefits of the consolidation. Bill Kovacic is a former Federal Trade Commission lawyer and chair who points out the deal will face review as growing food prices are driving up inflation. He also notes Kroger and Albertsons will face antitrust regulators in the Biden administration who have particularly pushed back against mega deals. They're going to get a much closer look than earlier transactions received in this sector. The companies are trying to get ahead of that scrutiny by promising to spin off dozens of stores in places where they currently overlap. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBR's All Things Considered, Bad Sisters, the season finale of the TV show. It was a raucous week of trading on Wall Street, and it's ending with a downswing. Today, the Dow lost 1.34 percent. That's 404 points. It closed to 29,635. S&P lost 2.37 percent to close at 3583 The Nasdaq surrendered more than 3% today to end the week at 10,321. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 4.18. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And BU Art Galleries, presenting the work of visionary artist Say Adams in a career retrospective exhibit through December 11th. BU.edu slash art. Boston area businesses say public transit challenges are hurting them. A new poll by the Boston Business Journal and Seven Letter finds one-third of local businesses surveyed say unreliable transportation has hurt their efforts to hire and keep workers. More than 25 percent have let their employees work from home more often because of those reliability issues. Eighty percent say public transit is worse in Boston than it is in other big cities. The forecast is coming up. 
Funding for WBOR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Things are starting to dry up and clear up, too. Should have mostly clear skies by daybreak tomorrow. Temperatures in the mid-50s overnight. And then sunny skies, comfortable tomorrow, about 70 for a high. Sunshine again on Sunday. Temperatures about 67 degrees. 66 degrees now in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Never in my life have I wanted to have a sister as badly as while watching the new dark comedy Bad Sisters. You don't need two eyes to aim. It's it's all about the stance, the the grip, breath. We we have time to do all that now because it's going to be very frantic on the day. Can I just hit it first before you start dismantling the plan? No one's dismantling the plan. They are a band of five murderous Irish sisters. Actually, only four of them are murderous. Their target is the husband of sister number five. Shove them into deep, dark water. Feed them to the sharks. Let the seagulls feed up the eyes. Sharon Horgan plays the oldest sister, Eva. In real life, she's a writer, and the series is her creation. Bad Sisters is an adaptation of a Belgian show which featured a zany plot and a murder attempt every week, a murder attempt that Horgan says usually ended with more bodies. What I wanted to do was to just really ground it, because um, to me, the interesting thing at the heart of it was this relationship, this awful, abusive, coercive relationship that the sisters decide to um, rescue their their other sister from. And so in order to really feel that and and believe that and ground that, I had to sort of take the whole thing down a notch and, and for the collateral damage to really be, you know, what happens to the sisters themselves when they decide to do this you know, pretty, pretty terrible and um, um, careless, dangerous thing, which is to take their brother-in-law out. Um, And I felt like it really had to sort of almost destroy them. Yeah. It's so interesting because you're describing there's there's a certain kind of uh, screwball or madcap comedy aspect to it. There's some crazy stuff that happens and we'll get to a little bit of that. (laughs) But it's also this portrait of this unique relationship. I mean, I, I, I said I've, I've never wanted a sister so much as watching this show, and I mean it. I have Aww. a brother. He's great. But this band of five women um, who are so different, 
And yet the intimacy and the loyalty and the snarkiness, like they're mean to each other in a way that I wouldn't be. There's a lot of snark. It's unique. Um, It is. There's a friendship isn't like that. You know, you know, a marriage or a partnership isn't like that. It's um, it's very, very unique. Yeah. Um, Well, let's describe what at least four of them are bonding over, which is the plan. They have to kill their rotten, awful brother-in-law. Describe John Paul. (laughs) <laughs> with with pleasure. Um, well, I don't know if it is pleasure, really. He He's an awful, terrible man. You know, he's a religious man. He, he's a, a man who feels he's got moral righteousness on his side. But he's a monster. We'll be back as quick as we can. You had a glass of champagne. You can't drive. Well, maybe you can drive Of course I can. I had a glass myself. I've not missed a swim since I was little. I'll be perfectly fine. Christmas Day. He's abusive um, emotionally and, and, you know, verbally and um, financially. He's taken away all her sort of autonomy and um, she's basically about to to disappear. And and on top of that, they, they have a child together and you can see that he's beginning to to minimize his daughter as well. And so um, the four sisters are sort of watching this happening before their eyes and they're worried that there's going to be nothing left if they don't step in there. Did you worry that you were creating a character so despicable in John Paul that there might not be enough tension in the show? (laughs) (laughs) No, because, um, well, I mean, yes, but I mean, I hope we we got past that in in the writing and the execution of it because... um, you know, I I desperately wanted to make sure that he was incredibly entertaining to watch. A villain has to have more going on. You know, they have to have layers. And I, I don't think it can just be straight out and out kind of badness or evil, you know, unless they're like a side character. Do you know what I mean? Totally. I think for... Because for, for it's ma- not interesting. It's not. And, and for a main character like him... It was really important to us that we, we we see him have tender moments with his daughter, to have vulnerable moments with his own relationship with his mother and, you know, a past that's really difficult. There's a couple of moments within the, the season where you do feel for him, you know. I mean, I knew an audience had to completely be on board for what the sisters are doing. And for that reason, the audience had to be prepared to, you know, make a child fatherless. That that was kind of my biggest worry, I think, you know. It was so clear that he was... Um, he had to go, but at the same time, you're robbing a child of her father, so there had to be a sort of good enough reason for, for the sisters to do that. So, no spoiler alert required. He dies. The first episode has him laid out in the casket. So you, you know this from the get-go, and the 10 episodes are kind of taking you through how that came to be. Um, and I want to take people a little bit through that. The sisters start off trying to blow him up, if I'm not mistaken, and then there's poison. <laughs> and then yeah. there's, there's a paintball incident, which... Stunningly didn't work. Um, <laughs> there's an almost drowning. The guy, this guy will not die. Um, he is he <laughs> is a master at cheating death. I mean, that is the slightly cartoon aspect of it. That's the slightly heightened thing, the sort of Willy Coyote, you know, not being able to off the road runner. I was even about sort of, to say that's the yeah. line 
your yeah. character. Give me the line that you got to deliver. I swear to God. I swear to God, we'd have an, an easier time trying to off the road runner. I think that was it. Off the bloody road runner. Was off I the bloody road runner. Okay. <laughs> Which must have been fun both to both to deliver and to write. Oh yeah, for sure. A lot of it you 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 have to do on the hoof and. The, the great thing about me being there as the actor and, and, you know, the writer is that you can sort of, as it goes, find those little moments and, and sort of, you know, throw them in or adjust as you go. And How do you figure out how to end a show like this? Because it, it could spin, it could jump the shark. It could, it could spin off oh. into a direction so bonkers that it's yeah. not satisfying. Oh, listen, I had so many sleepless nights. You just like desperately desperately want an audience to feel that they were rewarded for sticking around for all 10 do you know what i mean that the the sleepless nights where people you know getting to the end and going huh which has happened to me many times when i watched a tv show and then i got to the finale and i'm like what are you talking about and what did you want? What did you want people to get here by the end? Where did you want us oh, to land? Oh, oh, you know, I just really wanted them to feel it. I, I, I wanted it to, to take them on a sort of roller coaster, and I wanted to emotionally sort of wring it out of an audience. I wanted there, of course, to be a surprise. Yeah, I wanted it all. Actually, it's very greedy. I, um, I wanted everything. Well, Sharon Horgan, I felt it. So well done. Good. It was, it was a lot of fun to watch. And it's been such fun to speak to you. Oh, thank you so much. That is Sharon Horgan talking about her diabolically delightful new show, Bad Sisters. Bad Sisters is out now on Apple TV+. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. In sports, Patriots quarterback Mac Jones is listed as questionable to play on Sunday on the road against the Cleveland Browns. Jones suffered an ankle injury in a game nearly three weeks ago. His questionable status is an improvement from last week at this time when he was listed as doubtful for last weekend's game. Ultimately, he didn't play. If Jones cannot play on Sunday, then rookie quarterback Bailey Zappi will again get the start. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clearing skies tonight. Sunshine in for the weekend. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Farmers to You, an online Vermont farmer's market who believes that you can only trust your food when you know your farmers. Farmerstoyou.com slash WBUR. And the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Peer-led courses, speakers, and more apply now for 2023. The Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. What does the Congressional January 6th Committee hope to hear from Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas? She was more than just a kook who was sending all of these messages to Mark Meadows, trying to get Trump and the White House to do all sorts of things to overturn the election. I think they want to show that her role was actually far more sophisticated than that. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Consumers pulled back on their spending a bit last month. Retail sales were unchanged in September from August as rising prices for rent and food chipped away at money available for other things. While today's Commerce Department report shows shoppers' resilience in the face of rising inflation, the Fed will likely keep up its aggressive pace of interest rate hikes. 
President Biden is expected to talk about inflation and the economy later this afternoon when he speaks at a community college here in Southern California. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. President Biden will deliver remarks in Irvine today on lowering costs for American families. With less than a month to go before the midterm elections, Biden says rising prices will be a top issue among voters. Later today, Biden will travel to Portland, Oregon to campaign for the Democratic gubernatorial candidate who's locked in a tight race with her Republican challenger. The state hasn't had a Republican governor in nearly 40 years. That's NPR's Windsor Johnston. Britain's Prime Minister Liz Truss has forced out her finance minister and reversed course on tax cuts following weeks of turmoil on financial markets. From London, Villa Marks reports. Truss's decision to accept the resignation of her political ally, close friend and finance minister Kwasi Kwarteng was designed, she said, to stabilize the UK's economy. Speaking at Downing Street hours after Kwarteng rushed home early from meetings in Washington, D.C., Truss confirmed corporate tax rates would also rise. Cuts to business taxes had formed part of a series of reform proposals Kwarteng announced late last month, prompting the British pound to plummet while government borrowing costs and mortgage payments for householders soared. The funding for the tax cuts was never explained and Truss acknowledged the moves went, quote, farther and faster than many people expected. For NPR News, I'm Villa Marks in London. Stocks finished broadly lower on Wall Street, leaving major indexes in the red for the week. The Dow was down more than 400 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The Brookline Select Board has fired the town's new police chief. An independent investigation concludes Ashley Gonzalez sexually harassed several women who work in the police department. Gonzalez had only been on the job two months when he was placed on paid leave in August when the allegations surfaced. The Select Board terminated Gonzalez's employment following a disciplinary hearing today. Investigators say he also violated the town's policy against retaliation. Prosecutors in Middlesex County say they're reviewing all criminal cases involving a Woburn police officer suspected of helping to plan a deadly white supremacist rally in Virginia five years ago. Officer John Donnelly has been placed on leave as Woburn officials investigate. Here's WBUR's Deborah Becker. Middlesex County District Attorney Marion Ryan says her office is reviewing all cases in which Donnelly was involved and will be notifying the defense attorneys in those cases. Yesterday, Woburn officials placed Donnelly on leave, saying they're investigating whether he attended and helped plan the 2017 so-called Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. D.A. Ryan says next week she'll convene an emergency meeting of her office's anti-hate, anti-bias task force. Reports in the Huffington Post say Donnelly played a key role in the rally and used an alias to post racist and anti-Semitic comments online. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts Congressman William Keating and Jim McGovern are among those calling on President Biden to support the creation of an international tribunal to prosecute Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. They introduced legislation today that calls for the U.S. to lead the international community to hold Russian officials accountable for the war. They call Vladimir Putin not only an enemy of Ukraine, but a threat to international order. The international community has not held such a war tribunal since the end of World War II. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, presenting Medal of Honor, showcasing artistic interpretations of gold from the Renaissance and today, GardnerMuseum.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. 
After too many clouds around, clear skies should arrive just in time for the weekend. Tonight's low is about 53. Tomorrow, sunny, dry, light winds above 70 degrees. Sunday, sunny again, breezy around 67. 66 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Culligan Water. Since 1936, committed to providing cleaner and safer filtered water on demand, while working to help reduce the number of plastic bottles going into landfills. Learn more at Culligan.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies. At Fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Among the biggest revelations to come out of the last select committee hearing on the January 6th attack is new evidence showing the U.S. Secret Service knew there was potential for the day to turn violent. California Congressman and committee member Adam Schiff said the panel obtained nearly a million records from the Secret Service. And here's how he described one tip to the agency. According to the source of the tip, The Proud Boys plan to march armed into D.C. Their plan is to literally kill people. Please, please take this tip seriously and investigate further. Let's talk about the implications of this with Carol Lenig, a national investigative reporter for The Washington Post who has covered the Secret Service extensively. Hi, Carol. Hi. How are you, Sasha? I'm good. Help us suss out this timeline. At what point did the Secret Service know about the possibility for violence? Even I was surprised to learn that as early as, you know, the day before Christmas, the Secret Service had prescient early warnings about the likelihood that folks traveling to Washington for the president's rally were planning a siege on the Capitol. At least some of them were. There is a whole unit at the Secret Service called the Protective Intelligence Division, and they found the chatter online among these groups was incredibly violent. The Protective Intelligence Division, as far as we can see, did not make any change to plan as a result of seeing all of this uh, plotting for real danger. What should have been done as a result of this information we now know the Secret Service received? There should have been a law enforcement and national security collective threat assessment meeting days before January 6th, that meeting would have led to a lot of smart steps. And one of them possibly could be additional protection for the vice president as he moved to the Capitol, a place that was targeted for attack. As I say it out loud, it's still sort of gobsmacking to me that they allowed the vice president to go there. Carol Lenig, I was reading reader comments on the story you wrote about this new evidence, and one of them says this, that the revelations, quote, raise questions about the reliability and, more importantly, the loyalty of at least some members of the Secret Service. What insight can you offer about this larger issue of where the loyalties of the Secret Service lay that day? You know, for my book, Zero Fail, I wrote a piece that had to do with numerous members of the presidential protection team who were privately and in some of their public Facebook posts or online media posts were cheering on the rioters at the Capitol. I 
have known for a long time that the Secret Service leans conservative, but one of the very worrisome elements of the Secret Service that day is they were allowing a senior Secret Service official to be a political advisor to Donald Trump. Tony Arnato, his number one goal in that position was to help Donald Trump make appearances that helped him politically. And that really never should have happened because you can't be an apolitical protector of our democracy and the stability of it, that's the Secret Service mission, and be implementing a president's will to remain in power. How has the Secret Service responded to what the January 6th panel laid out? Farhan Paramore, a now deputy director of the Secret Service, issued a statement saying, you know, we are part of a national security and in, and law enforcement team with a host of other agencies. We share and receive intelligence, and we did that day. That doesn't explain what actions did you take with this information. I know Secret Service agents routinely will run down every single lead about a threat against the president's life. They've been known to go to a bar where somebody was drunk and spouting off and didn't really mean the threat that they said. But the agents in the field go and find that person, knock on their door and ask them, what's going on, man? So why weren't these other threats something to take note of, to have concern about? That's Carol Lenig, a national investigative reporter for The Washington Post. Carol, thank you. Thank you. The humanitarian situation in Haiti is growing dire. Gangs have been blocking aid and fuel supplies. Cholera is making a comeback. And the man who has been leading Haiti since the last president was assassinated a year ago is asking for foreign intervention. But the history of U.S. interventions there is giving many in Washington pause, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. U.S. officials say it would be premature to talk about U.S. boots on the ground in Haiti, but a U.S. Coast Guard cutter is patrolling offshore, and Secretary of State Antony Blinken has been talking to regional players about how to stabilize the country. We have to look at what steps are necessary to effectively support uh, the, uh, the Haitian National Police and whether there are other things the international community can do uh, to help uh, Haiti provide security uh, effectively for itself. There is reason to be wary, says Robert Faton, a professor at the University of Virginia. There's a centuries-old history of foreign meddling in Haiti, and none of it led to anything good. Haitians, when they look at the record of foreign interventions, are not too enthusiastic about them. On the other hand, the situation is very critical. The World Food Program is sharing footage of looted gas stations and Haitians lining up outside banks. Country director Jean-Martin Bauer says the country is at a standstill. Schools are closed, hospitals are closed, and farmers are having trouble bringing their goods to the market. This is aggravating a very fragile food security situation. The World Food Program says nearly half of Haiti's population is facing acute hunger. Professor Faton says it's as bad as he's seen it, and now he says Haiti's prime minister is asking for help. And this is one of the paradoxes, because you hear the Haitians always talking about an independent and sovereign Haiti, but once they are in the government and things are not going well, they are calling for such an intervention. 
The U.S. says it is considering the prime minister's request for help, but writer Jonathan Katz points out that this government was not elected, and he criticizes the U.S. for backing what he calls a democratic vacuum in Haiti since the last president was assassinated. You could have military force come in and, you know, knock down the barricades and kill some of the gang members and, you know, send others into hiding. But what does that do to the central problem, which is that Haiti currently doesn't have a functioning democracy, it doesn't have a representative government. Katz, author of the book Gangsters of Capitalism, says there's no easy fixes. Even the U.N. has a bad reputation in Haiti because peacekeepers brought cholera to the island over a decade ago. One of the big things the United Nations could do and the United Nations members could do um, would be to make good on their promises to make restitution to the Haitian people for having brought a cholera epidemic that killed 10,000 people and is now emerging again. The U.N. Security Council meets Monday on Haiti, and so far the U.S. says it's mostly just pushing for sanctions against criminal gangs and their financial backers. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The first question on this fall's ballot in Massachusetts is a proposal to make high earners pay a higher rate of state income taxes. It's a so-called millionaire's tax. It would add an extra 4% tax to any income above $1 million. If voters pass it, the change will be locked into the state's constitution. WBR's Yasmin Ammer has done a deep dive into this ballot question and joins us now. Hi, Yasmin. Hi, Lisa. So let's start with the basics. How would the tax work? So this affects high earners. So these are people who make more than a million dollars. If this passes and I'm a CEO making two million, that first mill is going to be taxed at a 5% rate. That's our current income tax rate in Massachusetts. But my second million dollars will be taxed at 9% under the new system. And this isn't just for people with big salaries. It also affects these so-called one-time millionaires. These are people who win the lottery, say, or earn a big profit selling an expensive house or business. And a study from Tufts looked at taxes from 2019, and it found that fewer than 1% of households in Massachusetts made more than a million dollars. But Lisa, I want to emphasize something. This is a proposed constitutional amendment. So if it passes, it would be very hard to change. It is not unusual to ask wealthier people to pay a higher tax rate, meaning the more you make, the more you pay. The federal government does it. Do many states do it? It's not unusual. The federal government has a tiered tax system. The more you make, the higher your rate is. And most states do have that income tax system as well, the tiered one. Massachusetts is one of 10 states with a flat income tax. Ours is 5% no matter what you make. So how much, if it passes, could this net the state? So the first year, studies estimate that between $1.3 billion and $2 billion could be netted for the state. That $1.3 billion figure comes from a Tufts University study, and it accounts for people possibly leaving the state once this passes or or possibly hiding their taxes um, in in some other way. So uh, the $1.3 billion is a much more conservative estimate. Who is behind this proposal for a millionaire's tax, as it's called? 
The main coalition is called Raise Up. It's made up of unions, community, and religious organizations. And they like to call this the fair share amendment. They point out that Massachusetts is one of the top states when it comes to income inequality. That inequality has increased over the last decade, and they specifically want this tax to raise money for education and transportation. You know, money to fix, like, ailing school buildings or the MBTA. That's had issues. The communications director for Yes on One, Andrew Farnitano, was on Radio Boston this morning, and here's what he had to say. It's just common sense. When you look at our cities and towns, when you look at our transportation system, they all need more revenue. They all need more funding for schools and roads and bridges and public transportation. And what about the other side? Who are they and what are they saying against the tax? The other side is lots of big businesses and trades groups. They say this is just bad policy and it could push many high earners to simply leave the state. Dan Sensi is a spokesman for No on One, and he said this in the same Radio Boston interview. Given COVID, given the change in the workplace, the work from home mentality and the, and the new structure that businesses are creating here, it's much easier for high earners to go to New Hampshire, to domicile in Florida and still keep their job or keep where they're working. Opponents also say it doesn't make sense to raise taxes when the state is already having to issue refunds because it's collected too many taxes. I know you've talked about this before, but this obscure law called 62F, and it essentially limits how much the state can keep in revenues each year. And this year, Governor Baker announced the government will have to return almost $3 billion to taxpayers. Again, it's very rare that this happens, but it is happening the same year a new tax is on the ballot. And finally, opponents say there's no guarantee the extra money will go toward education or transportation. And that's because lawmakers will ultimately have the final say on where the money goes. WBR's Yasmin Ammer on question one on the November ballot. Thank you, Yasmin. Thank you, Lisa. This is one of the reports in a series WBR is bringing you on the four ballot questions in Massachusetts. Tune in next week for explainers on ballot questions two and three. Election Day is November 8th. You can vote early in person starting October 22nd. Mail-in voting is also an option. You can find key voting deadlines and information on the ballot questions in a voter guide on our website, WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, with programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th-century townhouse in the heart of historic Beacon Hill, now open at 71 Charles Street. And Loomis Sales Fuss Family Health Initiative, a philanthropic and community service initiative dedicated to helping to ease the mental health crisis facing youth in under-resourced communities by raising awareness, reducing stigmas, and supporting the many young people who feel alone as they grapple with mental health challenges. This is 90.9 WBUR, what it's like to win a MacArthur Genius Grant coming up. Clouds are starting to break up and sunshine should dominate the weekend. Tonight clearing, not too chilly, about 53. Tomorrow and Sunday, bright and beautiful. Looks like a good weekend for leaf peeping. High temperatures in the upper 60s to about 70 degrees. The warmer day should be tomorrow. 66 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 450. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. And Arts Emerson's On Beckett. Bill Irwin's On Beckett running at the Paramount Theater in Boston, October 26th through 30th. 
Griffith. Get tickets at artsemerson.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. There are honors and awards, and then there are the MacArthur Foundation Fellowships, the Genius Grants, No Strings Attached, Big cash prize, $800,000 to pursue research or change careers or really do whatever you like. Writer Kia C. Lehman is one of this year's 25 winners. The foundation said Lehman is, quote, bearing witness to the myriad forms of violence that mark the black experience in formally inventive fiction and nonfiction. Kia C. Lehman, welcome back to All Things Considered and congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here with y'all. That description I just read to you, they're trying to encapsulate your life's work so far and that phrase. <laughs> Does that feel right? Did they capture it? Did you know that's what you were doing? Well, um, I think they captured what they see in the work. And, you know, as a as an author, you have to be thankful anytime people see anything in the work. I mean, I, I think I'm grappling with a lot more than violence. I think I'm definitely grappling with, with, with joy and I'm grappling with, like, you know, the paradoxes of intimacy. Aren't we um, all? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think I think so, and I, and, I'm, and and you know most of my work is about Black Southerners and definitely Mississippians. So mm -hmm. I, I I like the part of the description that talks about form and and invented forms because I'm definitely trying to use different forms for what I do. But you know I, I appreciate that they saw that in my work. You know if I look at my own work, I see that, and I maybe see a few other things. You tweeted right after this was announced. My impulse when I get anything is to hate on the folks who made that getting hard while pinpointing the folks who deserve to get more than me. And then you went on and you wrote, not today. Why not? Uh, I'm just sort of tired of undermining myself. You know, the world is, is hard enough for everybody. The world is out to sabotage enough of us often. I just didn't think I needed to partake in any more self-sabotage, which is something I often do if I win anything. I'm always, you know, my thing is to be like, I don't deserve it. Somebody else deserves it more. And then my thing is to be like, let me talk about all the people who made it so hard for me. And I get why that is some my impulse and some other people's impulse. But I think that also like stops you from feeling the joy and, like you know, revisiting the wonder of how you got there. You also wrote, I'm here because Mississippi loved me. What's that mean? Yeah, you know, I, I think we know it's important, especially now um, and well, all the time, actually, but especially now with Mississippi being in the news for, you know, what, what Tate Reeves, the governor, is doing, what Brett Favre, you know, former quarterback, is doing, you know, the, the water in my city, Jackson. I just think it's important to let people know that the Mississippi that they talk about sometimes, like on the news or Twitter or just in casual conversations, isn't the Mississippi that a lot of us who live in Mississippi experience. It's part of it, but... I experienced like, you know, complicated love from a grandmother and an auntie and a mama and a community. And those people, those people were Mississippi and those people are Mississippi to me, just as much as all of that other terrible stuff is Mississippi. So, you know, Mississippi loved me and the tradition of Mississippi writers definitely loved me. And that's <laughs> there are a lot of there are a few reasons why I think I might have won that award. But had I not been loved by Mississippi, I mean, I wouldn't be on the phone with you today. That's mm. that's for sure. You have um, you've talked about your work and said, I want people to create art in response to my art. And then yeah. I want people to create art in response to those people's art. Yeah. Um which prompts a question, whose art are you responding to? Oh, that's a beautiful question. 
particularly in this new book I'm writing called Good God, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to write back to Jasmine Ward, who to me is like the greatest fiction writer that we have, living fiction writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Jasmine does so much with what people call spirit and what people call hauntings. Um, so literally today when I do my writing practice, I'm going to continue to write back to her. I think in How to Solely Keep Yourself and Others, I was writing um, back to Baldwin, you know, um, I was trying to write to Morrison and, and, and Heavy, definitely writing back to Richard Wright. Um, and then I just write, I write back to a lot of people who don't write books. You know, I write back to uh, my grandmother didn't, you know, she's never written a book in her life. I write to her often. I write back to my mom. But artfully, I'm using a lot of Southern writers, Mississippi writers particularly. And, you know, when you write back to somebody, I write back to Faulkner. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I, 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 you know, I contest a lot of what Faulkner does, but I think that is the mark of love, right? Like that's what Baldwin told us to get in there and, and, and sometimes messily like, like take apart the art that influences you so you can find yourself. 800,000 bucks. Um, <laughs> that's enough money to change a person's life. <laughs> Nobody said it. Nobody said that to me. <laughs> I'm yet. just gonna say it. Nobody Eight, said the number out loud. Eight hundred thousand oh bucks. Sit with that for Whoa. a second. Any thoughts Whoa. on what you might do? Um. Well, I want to be okay not knowing what I'm gonna do for the first year, and and I learned that from a few people who've gotten MacArthur's who've you know been nice enough to tell us how not to go nuts. But I I want to fix my body and my head. I, I'm, 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 I'm sort of addicted to work and I sort of neglect the part of work that is sort of most essential, which is your body and ironically your head. So I want to I want to I want to find space. I don't know where it is. I want to find time to ask myself what makes my feet, my hips, my neck feel better. And I think that'll help my head feel better. And I, and I want to I want to like, you know, convince myself that I am worthy of that. And that takes a lot of work for some people. Um, I also know that a lot of that or some of that money is going to the Catherine Coleman Literary Arts Food and Justice Initiative. Catherine Coleman is my grandmother. I started this initiative based on revision and workshop in Mississippi a few years ago. This a few weeks ago, we just moved the Catherine Coleman Initiative to the Margaret Walker Center, Jackson State University. So I know some of the money is going to go to that. I have a family of a very happy and happy to spend my money, mamas and aunties and grandmamas and uh, cousins. So I'm going to try to do some things for them to make them happy. And so I'm not really sure what I'm going to do, but I keep convincing myself that I'm going to use this money to make my body and my head happier. I just don't know what that looks like, honestly, yet. One thing that jumps out every time I ask you about, you know, what matters to you or who you're talking to, you talk about women your mama, Mm -hmm. your aunties, your grandmom. It sounds like a lot of the people that you are talking to who are in your head as you write and figure out the next step, it's women. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not under any illusion of of who got me here. You know, it it is black women in Mississippi. And so when I think and talk about how I'm here, I have to talk about the women who made it possible. And I also just think of cis men, you know, we, we also need to talk and think a lot more about about femme and about the feminine inside of us, inside the women and men and genderqueer people in our lives. And especially as a black boy coming from Mississippi, you know, you can't do that thing where you feel like, you know, you made yourself out of red clay and I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Nope. You know, black women made me. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kia Lehman, we 
wish you luck with all this. <laughs> it has been a pleasure. Congratulations again. This was so kind and, and, and wonderful and probe, and I thank you for this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Insperity, providing HR support for 30-plus years, including access to benefits and HR technology. Insperity's mission is to help businesses succeed so communities prosper. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. And from Culligan Water, since 1936, a local Culligan specialist can provide in-home water tests and custom recommendations to treat the unique attributes of a home's water. More at Culligan.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Inuendo with the Hunter Douglas Season of Style event featuring the PowerView Smart Motorization System. Hunter Douglas at Inuendo in Natick and Inuendo.com. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. stock market is down this year. When that happens, bonds typically go up, but right now both stocks and bonds are down. Making sense of Wall Street? We're trying to, coming up. Today is Friday, October 14th, a down day on the street. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, what happens now that the House January 6th committee has subpoenaed former President Donald Trump? A group of young volunteers in Ukraine is trying to make war cleanup fun. Think music and dancing as they pick up. We're not builders. Yeah, well, just normal people. But we have our arms, our bodies, and our physical health. And in Boston today, MBTA and state officials face a grilling at a Senate hearing on tea safety. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Former President Donald Trump is lashing out at the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, a day after the panel voted to subpoena him. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. Trump's letter repeats his baseless claims of voter fraud and a rigged election. Committee member Zoe Lofgren tells NPR he also used the letter to blast the panel for not acknowledging the turnout the day of the attack. He's got pictures of his crowd complaining that we didn't show how big his crowd was and Mm. then rehashing various voter fraud allegations, all of which are untrue. The House committee wrapped up its series of public hearings on Thursday with additional evidence that supports its long-standing claim that Trump was directly behind the effort to overturn the 2020 election. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. 
Two major national supermarket groups are planning to join forces. Kroger and Albertsons have announced they will merge. From member station WVXU, Tana Weingartner has more. Cincinnati-based Kroger is acquiring Albertsons in a deal worth nearly $25 billion. Kroger CEO Rodney McMullen says the merger creates a national footprint covering 48 states. 85 million households, which you know is darn close to everybody in the United States. When you look at all of that together, it'll allow us uh, to create a customer experience and support for our associates unlike anything else. The companies combined employ more than 700,000 people in stores under banners like Fred Meyer, Harris Teeter, Safeway and Vons. The deal must be approved by federal regulators. For NPR News, I'm Tana Weingartner in Cincinnati. Still no word on a motive in the mass shooting in Raleigh, North Carolina yesterday that left five people dead. The suspect is a 15-year-old teen who was hospitalized in critical condition. Police say the teen started shooting on a neighborhood street, then on a walking trail seemingly at random. The victims ranged in age from 16 to 52, women and men of various races. British Prime Minister Liz Truss is reversing course on her tax cut plans, and she abruptly fired her finance minister, Kwasi Kwartning, faced with political and economic backlash since her election last month. Jeremy Hunt replaces him. Villa Marks has more. Truss accepted the resignation of her friend and political ally Kwarteng to strengthen Britain's economic stability, she said, at a press conference outside Downing Street. She still faces pressure from her Conservative Party's legislators to rethink her economic agenda that included major tax cuts and announced already corporate tax rates would now rise significantly next year. Villa Marks reporting. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 403 points. The Nasdaq down 327. S&P 500 down 86. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The head of the Federal Transit Administration says there are no plans to take over the MBTA or withhold federal funding as the T works to make safety improvements. Naria Fernandez told a U.S. Senate hearing in Boston today the community will need to support service disruptions while the MBTA makes needed improvements. I feel uh, that the system is safe and that people should continue to ride it. Yet tough decisions will have to be made now to create a better, safer future. There will be service impacts. Today's hearing for the T was called after a federal report this summer cited a poor safety culture at the T and a lack of oversight. Fernandez said her department will continue to monitor how the State Department of Public Utilities oversees the MBTA. A correction officer who was beaten on the job over the summertime is now out of a coma. The Massachusetts Correction Officers Federated Union says Matthew Tidman is now in a rehabilitation center to work on his recovery. He'd been in the hospital for a month after he was struck with a metal pole while he was patrolling a correctional facility in Shirley. An inmate serving a life sentence for murder is facing criminal charges for the assault. Police in Worcester arrested a woman today they thought was trying to bring a handgun into a courthouse. Police say 30-year-old Darlene Nguyen had what appeared to be a loaded silver revolver in plain view in her handbag. It turned out to be a replica, though, not a working firearm. She was arrested for disrupting a court proceeding, disturbing the peace, and carrying a dangerous weapon. The women's winner of the 2021 Boston Marathon is being disqualified after she tested positive for doping at the race. Diana Kipyoki is also being suspended from professional competition. Track and Field's Athletics Integrity Unit said today a post-race test last October found traces of banned substances in Kipyoki's system. It also alleges she obstructed the investigation. The Kenyan runner is being given a chance to appeal. 
In the forecast, clouds are starting to break up. Sunshine should dominate the weekend. Tonight, clearing, not too cold, right about 53. For tomorrow, should be sunny skies, high temperatures in the upper 60s. Sunday, sunshine again, upper 60s to nearly 70 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. And Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Donald Trump is not known for cooperating with investigations that target him or his businesses. So now that the Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol has voted unanimously to subpoena him, you have to wonder about the former president's next move. Democratic Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland is on the committee, and he told NPR this morning that Trump doesn't really have a choice. Multiple presidents and seven former presidents have come to testify before Congress. His being a former president does not entitle him to skip out on the law. To parse what comes next, Aziz Huck joins me now. He is a professor of constitutional law at the University of Chicago. Professor Huck, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks, Mary Louise. Okay, my central question here, I thought a subpoena meant you are compelled to testify, that this was not optional, but... The emerging consensus seems to be that Trump will not cooperate. So how does this work? Can he ignore a subpoena? A subpoena is a lawful order to produce either documents or to testify. Mm -hmm. But a subpoena needs to be enforced. Congress has to take a couple of steps before this subpoena would be enforced. And it is likely that any of the paths that it took would require a good deal of time and would give the former president a number of opportunities to delay the process beyond the lifespan, at least of the current Congress. Okay. All right. Let me follow up on a couple of things. First of all, what 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 are the penalties here? If If the former president does not produce documents, does not show up and testify, what happens? If... Former President Trump doesn't voluntarily cooperate. The committee has two basic options. The first is that it could refer the case to the Justice Department for prosecution. Mm -hmm. There is an 1857 statute that allows prosecutions for contempt of Congress. Indeed, Steve Bannon was just convicted under that statute. The president's former senior advisor. Go on. The second option is to proceed in court itself using a civil suit to compel performance uh, by the former president uh, under the subpoena's terms. Uh, If the committee takes that second route, there's a possibility of civil contempt sanctions, which might be a fine, and in rare cases, imprisonment. If it takes the criminal contempt route and the Justice Department were to agree to bring a case, and a court were to find the former president in contempt, there could be a sentence of up to one year and a fine of up to $1,000. 
So you're right. None of this sounds easy or straightforward. Does that mean if you are Donald Trump's lawyers, your strategy might boil down to trying to run down the clock? Because if Republicans win the House in November, as many expect, does the January 6th committee just disperse? And at least where Congress is concerned, the subpoena goes away? That's right. If the Republicans gain control of the House in November, the new majority would have power both to wind up the January 6th committee and also to withdraw the subpoena against the former president. In that case, the former president would not have any legal concern with respect to uh, producing information for a committee that no longer existed. I was struck by something Liz Cheney, the Republican vice chair of the committee, talked about during the hearing yesterday, and it was accountability. She said... Without accountability, it all becomes normal and it will recur. I mean, she was talking big picture about Donald Trump. But does it apply here as well to Congress's powers to investigate and hold anyone accountable? Meaning if Congress issues a subpoena and it isn't complied with and there's no real penalty, that this becomes normal and it will recur? I think the big question presented today is whether the United States has a mechanism for addressing high-level criminality, uh, acts by a very senior official within the government, either that violate the law or that seriously break faith with the Constitution. The mechanism that is in the US Constitution, which is impeachment, has not done the work that I think the framers expected. The problem today is that the Constitution has nothing else to say on the matter. Other countries which have more recently enacted constitutions create mechanisms for investigating high-level criminality and for dealing with it in a nonpartisan way that doesn't risk uh, witch hunts, uh, but that ensures what uh, Representative Cheney calls accountability. We do not have those mechanisms, and that is a profound gap in our constitutional order. Hmm. That is Professor of Law at the University of Chicago, Aziz Huck. Professor Huck, thanks. Thanks so much, Mary Louise. The U.S. and Russia are facing off again, but this time it's not over Ukraine. It's over leadership of a little-known international tech agency that's been around since the mid-1800s. The International Telecommunication Union was created to help standardize the telegraph, but it could be the place where the future of the Internet is decided. NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin has the story. For Karen Cornblue, it's a question of a free and open internet. You know, in countries around the world, can citizens really know what's going on in their own countries abroad? And can they organize with each other? And can they be safe from surveillance? Cornblue is a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund. She's been closely watching an election an ocean away between an American and a Russian candidate. The American, Doreen Bogdan Martin, touts unfettered internet access for everyone. My vision is to enable a trusted, connected digital future for all. Her opponent wants countries to have more control over how their citizens connect. I'm Rashid Ismailov, nominated by Russian Federation. Both were vying to lead something called the International Telecommunication Union. It's the most important agency you've never heard of. The agency has been making sure people can communicate around the world since the 1860s, after something called the telegraph was invented. In Paris. The rulers of an uneasy world came to terms, faced with a new machine which abolished time and space. 
In the 1960s, the UN produced a short film to mark 100 years of the ITU. Already the lines of the telegraph stretched out and dared to cross the frontiers of sovereign states. The ITU does a lot of important work. It's the reason your cell phone works at home as well as in Toronto or Tokyo. The ITU is also responsible for allocating radio bandwidth for everything from high-speed internet to HD TV. A huge 82-inch and a 65-inch, two-for-one, just $17.99. Whoa. These same kinds of technological advances helped me reach Ambassador Erica Bark's Ruggles in Bucharest. If there weren't frequencies set aside for things like WhatsApp, which we're calling on, uh, we wouldn't be able to do this either. She's the head of the U.S. delegation to the ITU conference. The U.S. is backing Doreen Bogdan Martin at a moment when competition with Russia and China in all domains is so intense. She has a vision uh, putting right at the very front of her vision, connecting the 2.7 billion unconnected people in the world. In a first, President Biden threw his weight behind the American candidate. But in the Trump era and even before, dating back to 9-11, there was less focus on these obscure international agencies. The thing is, their members make a lot of really key decisions. Without the U.S. taking a lead role, Russia and China felt emboldened to push for their policies, including inside the International Telecommunication Union. One of those policies is to allow individual countries more power over how the internet works. In Bucharest, Erica Barks Ruggles says the U.S. believes in total openness. There are others who disagree with that, who would like to be able to control when their citizens can talk to other people and what they can talk to them about. Um, sometimes within their own countries, um, we've all heard about the Great Firewall, um, but also between countries. Of course, when Russia and China are pitching their vision to other countries, they don't always sell it so bluntly. Sometimes they go into a country shore and they say, this is a way for you to stifle dissent. Justin Sherman is a fellow at the Atlantic Council. But in many cases, they say the West has dominated the internet since its inception. Silicon Valley is out of control. This is not about empowering China. This is not about empowering Russia. This is about empowering you. Getting back to that election in Bucharest, the reality is that the U.S. has been genuinely worried about the outcome. The result would be decided by a secret ballot, which means countries could vote in Russia's favor without anybody knowing. And so, on the morning of September 29th in Bucharest, the winner was announced. Distinguished colleagues, ladies and gentlemen. Doreen Bogdan Martin prevailed. She got 139 votes out of 172 the first woman to be ITU's leader ever. I am deeply, deeply humbled and filled with emotion. Now, the work begins. Members of the ITU will meet until mid-October, talking about everything from artificial intelligence to cybersecurity. But Chinese companies like Huawei, they still want to take the lead in forging the future of 5G, setting the standards, convincing other countries that their vision is better. Justin Sherman at the Atlantic Council doesn't think it's going to be easy for the U.S. The Chinese government will continue trying to influence the ITU. This victory is a good thing, but the hard work doesn't stop. Even so, this is a unique moment for the U.S. to grab hold. The war in Ukraine might not be on the agenda at the conference, but it's on everyone's mind in Bucharest. 
The leader of the U.S. delegation, Erica Barks Ruggles, says the message from other countries to Russia is pretty clear. Communication infrastructure has been destroyed. Economies have been strained. A number of uh, countries around the world have suffered shortages of grain and oil and things like this. And I think that they're saying this is not the way we want the world to run. A world that's moved way past the telegraph, but where nations are still fighting age-old battles. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up, MBTA and state officials were in the hot seat in Boston at a U.S. Senate hearing on safety on the T. I want to state unequivocally today to the committee and to our customers that the system is safe, but we can and will do better. That story is still ahead. It's 518. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Today, the Dow lost 1.34 percent. That's 404 points. It closed at 29,635. S&P lost 2.37 percent to close at 35.83. The Nasdaq surrendered more than 3 percent today. It ended the week at 10,321. Shares of the grocery chains Kroger and Albertsons both fell in today's trading after the companies announced plans to combine. Kroger says it plans to buy Albertsons for $20 billion. It would help the company better compete with Walmart and Amazon. Albertsons is the parent company of Shaw's and Star Market. The grocery stores have more than 40 locations in Massachusetts. Critics say the deal could lead to higher prices for shoppers. Kroger shares fell 7 percent today. Albertsons shares were down 8 percent. This is WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Hillside School, offering a structured environment with a 5-to-1 student-to-teacher ratio for boys grades 4 through 9. Hillside graduates confident young leaders. On-campus and virtual open house will be held October 19th from 1 to 3 p.m. Hillsideschool.net. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app whether you're working out or heading out to work. Things are starting to dry up and clear up, too. Should have mostly clear skies by daybreak tomorrow. Temperatures overnight falling to the mid-50s, and that should set us up for a mighty fine fall weekend. Sunshine both days, with highs about 67 to 70 degrees. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Clavio, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place. With e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue at klaviyo.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Stocks fell again today on Wall Street. The U.S. market's down about 25% so far this year. Now, usually when stocks are down, bonds hold steady or go up, but they're down too. So what is going on? The indicators Darian Woods and NPR's Chris Arnold break it down. 
owning both stocks and bonds is a basic concept of investing. It's like investing 101, right? You've got stocks, which tend to make you the most money over a long period of time. But they're volatile, right? And, and bonds are usually more like a slow turtle just chugging along, paying you a fixed, predictable rate of return. I love this turtle image. So with bonds, you're essentially lending to the government or a big company. They're agreeing to pay you back a fixed interest rate, say 2% a year. And after a set time period, you get your original money back too. And so the returns aren't flashy and impressive, But the risk is usually pretty low. You get slow, steady progress, like a turtle. Yeah, and when stocks crash, bonds usually hold their value or sometimes even go up. Right now, though, uh, not happening. These last couple of months have actually been really brutal. Deborah McDaniel is 69 years old. She lives in Bremerton, Washington, and she retired two years ago. And she's got a mix of stocks and bonds in her 401k. And she thought this was the responsible and safe approach for her retirement account, you know, especially as you get into retirement. Most advisors say to have a bigger share of your assets in those safe, steady bonds. So Deborah did that in her portfolio, but... It got hammered. (laughs) I'm down about, I want to say like 25% over the last 18 months-ish. And that's brought the value of her retirement account down from more than $500,000 to around $400,000. That's about all she has besides Social Security. So she finds herself thinking, you know, if if this goes on much longer... Oh, maybe I need to find a job again at 69. So here's what's happening. Bond prices are tied to interest rates in this kind of upside-down kind of way. So interest rates fall, bond prices rise, vice versa... And in a recession, you know, when the stock market is usually crashing, the Fed will be anxiously cutting interest rates to boost the economy, you know, to stem that crash. So in this situation, bond prices would tend to go up. But now we are not in a normal situation. Stocks are falling because people are worried that the Fed might cause a recession because it cares so much more about something else, inflation. Inflation's at a 40-year high, and so the Fed is relentlessly raising interest rates to hit the brakes on the economy, slow the economy to try to snuff out inflation. And remember that upside-down relationship, right? The interest rates go up, bond values go down. So what does this really mean for you, though? Okay, remember that bonds are those slow, steady turtles paying you interest. And bonds are also not like the most intuitive thing to understand. So to picture this, think of your bonds as actual turtles. Okay, and if you want to use that metaphor, right, then your turtles have numbers on their backs. Rick Miller runs a financial planning service outside Boston. And he says, let's say they have twos on their backs because they're paying you 2% a year on your investment. And they just keep doing that guaranteed unless the company fails or something. That's how bonds work. But new bonds are always getting issued and they might pay different interest rates. And so that's what's happening right now. Interest rates have quickly risen for all kinds of new bonds. So now you could buy the same type of bond, but... Now, let's say it could pay 5%, pay you back much more money. So these are faster, better turtles, essentially. Like, we are now racing these turtles. So you have your 2% turtle. It's still going as fast as it used to go. But in a competition, you can see the faster turtles out there. And if you want to sell your 2% turtle, that's a bit of a problem. Is it kind of like nobody wants to buy my, my crappy slow turtles? 
well, they can buy those speedy, nifty new five turtles. So why are they going to want your slow two turtle? And you could say, well, my turtle is still a nice turtle. It's a really cute turtle. But if you want to sell it, you're going to have to give them a discount. That right there is why your bond fund has fallen in value. Basically, you have to cut the price to sell it or nobody wants it because people have better options. Bonds that pay more money back. But, and this is really important, your bonds, even though on paper the price is lower if you want to sell them, you're still going to get that same 2% of interest based on the original amount you invested. Your turtle's not dying. Your turtle's not even sick, right? It's just a two. But Rick Miller says a big takeaway here for everyday investors is don't panic and sell all your bonds just because the price dropped. Yeah, because he says somebody like retiree Deborah McDaniel, if she was making $10,000 a year in interest income off of the bonds in her retirement portfolio, if she doesn't sell them. It should still be generating $10,000 a year, that bond fund, that bond portfolio. Even if it's gone down in price, it still pays her the same amount of money. That is key to understand in all of this. And it's reassuring to Deborah. It's good to know that my entire portfolio hasn't tanked. <laughs> so you have to look at not just your balance, but at the income part of your quarterly statements. The problem for retirees, of course, is that many do have to sell some bonds from their retirement account to pay for expenses, their rent or their mortgage, or if you're selling shares of your 529 plan to pay your kids college tuition. Right. Many of those have bond investments that are down. So a lower price does hurt them if you have to sell and there's just no way around that. But, you know, we, we should say that there is another silver lining here, too. For how many years have you heard people complain about like money market accounts? There's no money. There's no return. Interest rates on safe treasury bonds are so low. Well, now that's changing. So new money that you invest now into bonds at their current prices and interest rates, those bonds are going to be making you say twice as much as they would have before. And they will keep doing that for years to come. Now, to jump back to our beloved turtle metaphor here, you know, you've got a bond fund with bonds paying, say, 2%. It is kind of a bummer that they're twos, right, and not those faster, fancy fives. Right. Like, it would be great if you could just magically transform them into turtles that paid a higher interest rate. And actually, you know, part of the magical mystery of bonds, as I like to call it, is that over time, that does sort of happen. Those turtles don't live forever. Wait, wait, I thought turtles lived forever. My turtles are going to die. Well, I, I don't want to say that your turtles are going to die, but I mean, with kind of. I, I'm heartbroken. Yeah, I, I can tell that you're very, but look, let's just say they retire, they go to Florida. That, so after a certain number of years, depends on the bond, the bond matures, and then it pays you back the original amount of money that was invested in it. And then your bond fund uses that money to go replace that bond with a new bond. You buy new turtles. And if interest rates are higher, the new bonds will pay a higher interest rate. Exactly. And it's much better to fill in with fives than it is to fill in with twos. So I guess here too, it's the advice financial advisors tell you all the time in times of big market swings with the price of stocks or bonds, don't panic and sell stuff to stick with your plan. And with bonds, even more so because your dependable little turtles are still handing you tiny little fistfuls of money. Darian Woods, Chris Arnold, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. 
You're listening to NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. And Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Obsessive-compulsive disorder is not what I imagined it to be. I pictured mainly the compulsive side of OCD. And with Ella, her compulsion is actually avoidance. She will do anything to avoid the situations where vomit, tornado could happen. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The U.S. Treasury Secretary told global finance leaders gathering in Washington, D.C., that many of the challenges facing the global economy stem from Russia's terrible war in Ukraine. Economic growth is slowing as inflation remains historically high in many countries, including the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says policymakers are stepping up coordination to tackle the problems. That's hurt consumers around the globe. In response, the United States and its partners recently committed to finalize and implement a cap on the price of Russian oil. It's an innovative policy that aims to cut Putin's revenue while keeping Russian oil flowing onto global markets at low prices. Yellen also said there was wide agreement among international finance officials that Russia should stop its war against Ukraine, which she says is having serious negative consequences for the global economy. Russia has opened a criminal investigation into alleged Ukrainian shelling that's caused several deaths and damage along its border with Ukraine. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines reports. Russian authorities haven't specified how many people died, but border regions have repeatedly accused Ukraine of attacking Russian towns and infrastructure since the Kremlin ordered its forces into Ukraine in February. Earlier this week, President Vladimir Putin blamed Ukraine for what he called acts of terrorism against critical Russian infrastructure to justify a new barrage of missile strikes on cities across the country. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces are making progress with a counteroffensive that has retaken portions of its territory the Kremlin claims to have annexed. In the occupied Kherson region. The Moscow-backed authorities have called for a mass evacuation of civilians as Kiev's forces continue to advance. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Stocks finished broadly lower on Wall Street, leaving major indexes in the red for the week. You're listening to NPR. Bruce Sutter, the Baseball Hall of Fame pitcher known for his fastball, has died at the age of 69. Greg Eklund has this remembrance. After paying for his own arm surgery while a prospect with the Chicago Cubs, Bruce Souter later learned to throw the split-fingered fastball. That would be his bread and butter as a standout relief pitcher. In a 2001 interview, Souter says he was surprised the Cubs traded him to their rivals, the St. Louis Cardinals. It became a money thing when I won the salary arbitration, and, and you know, the Cubs, we weren't winning with me. Souter, who helped the Cardinals win the World Series championship in 1982, was inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame in 2006. For NPR News, I'm Greg Eklund. The Defense Department has received a request from SpaceX and Elon Musk to take over funding for his satellite network that's been providing battlefield communications for Ukrainian troops during the war with Russia. Musk tweeted it was costing SpaceX $20 million a month 
to provide broadband Internet to more than 150,000 Ukrainian ground stations. The Pentagon says the issue has been discussed and senior leaders are weighing the matter. Stocks finished broadly lower on Wall Street, leaving major indexes in the red for the week. The latest report on retail sales shows consumer spending was flat last month. The Dow dropped more than 400 points, down more than one and a quarter percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Middlesex District Attorney's Office is reviewing criminal cases that involve a Woburn police officer who's being linked to a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Officer John Donnelly is on leave after the city learned of allegations that he might have helped plan and attend the Charlottesville rally five years ago that resulted in the death of a counter-protester. Donnelly has not responded to requests for comment. Boston civil rights pioneer Jean McGuire has released a statement for the first time since she was attacked in Franklin Park in Boston. The 91-year-old says the community must unite. The statement ends with McGuire saying, I love you all and I will see you soon. McGuire was stabbed multiple times Tuesday night as she was walking her dog. Nobody has been arrested. It's breeding season for moose in New England, and that makes it a dangerous time for drivers. Martin Fian with the Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife says the animals are extra likely to cross roadways in the early fall as males search for partners. Last year, 15 vehicles collided with moose on Massachusetts roads. Fian says hitting one can be deadlier for the driver than hitting a deer. Moose are very top-heavy, and so it'll um, often kick out their feet, and so you'll have a ton of weight, often uh, in excess of 700, 800 pounds, that's going to land right on where passengers will be riding. Moose breeding season will wind down soon. Breeding season for deer begins in early November. It's 536. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CIC Innovation Campus, committed to creating an office space where talent wants to work. Flexible office space tours available at CIC.com slash enterprise. Skies should turn clear overnight tonight. Temperatures about 53. Then for tomorrow, mostly sunny, right around 70. Much the same for Sunday. Highs near 67 degrees. 66 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. In Boston today, U.S. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey confronted state officials about recent safety problems on the MBTA. Those problems include a string of deaths and injuries, derailments, and an orange line train that caught fire over the Mystic River. The senators said Massachusetts has had years to make sure riders on the T have had a reliable transit system, but has come up short. WBUR's Simone Rios was at the hearing that was chaired by Senator Warren. Warren said she wanted to have the hearing to hold transit officials accountable to the people of Massachusetts. She cited a report from the Federal Transit Administration from 2019 calling for changes at the T. 
Warren asked Department of Public Utilities Chair Matthew Nelson why he didn't do more to address the issues cited in the report three years ago. This is your job, is to oversee the MBTA. Where were you? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a fair question. And Good. The, the answer to that question is the department, when we took an assessment of the situation on the MBTA, we started to develop an, a hiring plan to bring more and new people into the unit, the rail safety unit, in 2020. Sitting next to Nelson was T General Manager Steve Poftak. Poftak said officials are committed to continuing to make the T safer and more reliable. I want to state unequivocally today to the committee and to our customers that the system is safe, but we can and will do better. Warren responded that all the problems the T has faced over the last four years have happened on Poftac's watch. But here's what the investigation from the FTA found. I quote, MBTA's executive management, that's you, does not consistently ensure its decisions related to safety risks are based on safety data or documented facts. I nearly fell over when I read that. Also testifying at the hearing was Nuria Fernandez, the administrator for the Federal Transit Administration. That's the agency that helps oversee the T. It recently issued a scathing report of both the T and the Department of Public Utilities, the state agency that's supposed to oversee safety at the regional transit agency. Fernandez made it clear that the federal government has no plans to take over the MBTA. Because uh, we have seen uh, this notion in news reports, and I think it's important that I clarify. The Federal Transit Administration does not have the legal authority to take over the day-to-day operations of any transit agency in this nation. Fernandez also says the agency plans to continue to provide hundreds of millions of dollars in federal grants for the T. But Warren wasn't satisfied with the answers from state officials. After the hearing, she said the leadership at the T needs to change. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Thousands of inmates are on strike in Alabama prisons. For nearly three weeks, they've stopped work at jobs in prison laundries and kitchens to protest living conditions and to demand reforms of harsh sentencing policies and the parole process. As the strike wears on, inmates say the state is punishing them by restricting meals, visitors, and recreation time. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett attended a protest that inmates' families held today on the Capitol steps in Montgomery and joins me now. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Sasha. Kyle, what are the families asking for? Well, they're trying to draw attention to what they say are dangerous conditions in Alabama's prisons. Here, we can take a listen to what it sounded like this morning. When we fight, we win! A little more than 100 people came on buses from around the state. They say conditions in the prisons are disgusting. There are piles of trash, roofs leak, that there are fights and stabbings because there aren't enough guards. Eric Buchanan was one of the speakers. He's been out of prison for four years and says the strike needs to continue. The world is being able to see exactly what the conditions are in prison. If they never knew, they're knowing now. Uh, the, the conditions are deplorable. Kyle, back up a bit and tell us how did this all start? So this began a few weeks ago, shortly after an inmate's sister posted a photo of him online. The inmate looked emaciated and the photo came with the message, get help. 
Within days, inmates in prisons statewide stopped work. And this is not the first time conditions in Alabama's prisons have come under fire. In 2020, the Department of Justice sued the state, claiming the conditions at men's prisons are unconstitutional and have led to homicides, rapes, and serious injuries. What exactly are the changes the inmates would like to see? Well, we know conditions are bad, but inmates are also looking at sentencing policies that contribute. You know, no one wants to spend more time in prison than they need to. The inmates' demands include repealing harsh sentencing laws and changing the parole and pardon procedures to make them less subjective. So these are big and, in some cases, legislative changes towards improving conditions. I imagine the strike is having an impact on daily prison operations. Oh, yes. The prisons initially cut cut meals down to two a day and weekend visitation stopped. In both cases, the Department of Corrections said they didn't have enough staff. Now they say that things have been restored at all but five prisons where inmates continue to strike. But the families I talked with today, Sasha, say that that's not what they hear from the inside. And Kyle, how likely is it that the inmates will get what they want with the strike? Well, Alabama's Governor Kay Ivey has said it's not within her authority to make many of the reforms inmates want and that they're unreasonable. The strike has gotten national media attention and the families are heartened by that, but it remains to be seen. One pastor, Sasha, told me today that he believes if they keep repeating their demands like a song, eventually everyone will start to sing along. That's Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett. Kyle, thank you. Thank you, Sasha. War is awful, but war cleanup? One grassroots organization in Ukraine is trying to make it fun by bringing young people from the cities into villages destroyed by fighting. NPR's Kat Lonsdorf has more. 66-year-old Hanna Yurchenko carries a basket full of apples freshly picked from the trees next door. It's a drizzly afternoon on one of the first cool days of fall. She walks around what was once her home, now not much more than a foundation littered with broken brick and shards of glass. It's a grim setting, but the mood is light. Techno blasts from a Bluetooth speaker, people laugh and dance. Hanna hands apples to the workers, shoveling piles of debris into metal buckets, clearing away the destruction so that the house can someday be rebuilt. She can't rebuild until it's been cleared. On the 7th of March, she says, she watched as not one but several rockets hit her home. This is the small village of Kolychivka in northeastern Ukraine, which was under heavy attack in the early weeks of Russia's large-scale invasion. I can't do this cleanup by myself. I'm just so grateful for these kids. The kids Hannah is referring to are the dozen or so 20 and 30-somethings clearing away the rubble. They rhythmically sway and shovel to the music. One woman cuts through old pipes with a power saw. 27-year-old Roman Tarasuk shakes his hips on top of a trailer as he empties buckets of debris to be hauled away. He's wearing overalls and a bright blue shirt, his long hair pulled back in a ponytail. The volunteering in Ukraine has become a part of our everyday life. 20-year-old Victoria Siktovska brings over a bucket she's filled. She says this festive atmosphere is necessary. We all feel anger and a lot of destructive emotions. Listening to music, she says, helps push those feelings away so they can work. That's the idea behind this whole event, put on by a group called Repair Together. Marina Harabina is one of the organizers. The scales of destruction, it is really huge. This all started with a group of friends who went to help a different village in the spring. But there were so many places that needed help. So they invited their friends who invited their friends, and it grew. Now all the volunteers pay a small amount to rent buses, and they work with local authorities to determine where they're needed most. Today, they're cleaning up six houses. We're not builders. 
here, yeah, well, just normal people. But we have our arms, our bodies, and our like physical health. She says most of all, it's about helping people. But it's also about making everyone feel less alone in all of this, building community. Down the street, a boombox blasts Ukrainian music perched on the foundation of another bombed-out home. Two young people throw bricks to each other, stacking them as they go. Tetiana Vereshaina shovels alongside the volunteers. This was her family's house. She says all of this was a surprise. She had asked the local authorities for a trailer and found out just the day before that a whole team was coming to help. Her nine-year-old daughter, Anastasia, jumps around and dances nearby. <laughs> She's been helping too, Tatiana says, making tea for everyone. Volunteer Lisa Kochube says just because she's out here helping today doesn't mean she isn't paying attention to what's happening. In fact, it's the opposite. Look, there are seven days a week, like five days a week we read the news and get really sad about what we read. And then we have two days when we gather together and we get distracted by work. A short walk away, past some cows grazing by the road, 60-year-old Katya Yershenko keeps watch over her destroyed property, where more young volunteers are packing up at the end of the day. She says she was born in this house, lived here all her life. Cleaning it up has been too emotional to do alone. She says this group of workers finished in one day what would have taken her months, even if the music isn't really for her. They're young and they like music, so I don't mind. But honestly, I don't have any music in my soul right now. And then she pauses and says, You know what, though? The music is much better than the bombs. As Katya talks, a sunset fills the entire horizon, bright pink, orange, purple. It bounces off the gold dome church next door, reflects in the nearby stream. A few volunteers stop packing up to take selfies and then continue stacking equipment. Katya thanks them. They wave, heading down the dirt road, carrying the Bluetooth speaker still blasting. They turn a corner, the music fades. The village is quiet again. Katya walks over, standing in what was once her kitchen. Now, she says, she just needs some help to rebuild. Kat Lonsdorf, NPR News, Kolichivka, Ukraine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in honor of Shortwave's third birthday. All Things Considered hosts test their science knowledge with a quiz inspired by the daily podcast. That's coming up on WBUR. The Boston Book Festival kicks off Friday, October 28th and runs through Saturday. WBUR hosts will be there. Find details at WBUR.org events. It's 548. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson's Drum Folk. They took away the drums, but they could not stop the beat. October 5th through 16th at the Cutler Majestic Theater, artsemerson.org. Tonight, the Celtics will play their final preseason game. They'll be in Toronto for a 7.30 matchup with the Raptors. Patriots say quarterback Mac Jones is questionable for Sunday's game against the Cleveland Browns. Jones is out with an injured ankle from nearly three weeks ago. If he is out this Sunday, the rookie Bailey Zappi will get his second start of the season. 
In the forecast, we should soon see the back end of the clouds. Clear skies arrive in time for the weekend. Tonight's low is about 53. Tomorrow, sunny, dry, light winds right up about 70 degrees. And then for Sunday should be another beautiful day, good for leaf peeping. Sunshine, breezy, highs around 67 degrees. 65 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. On this week's Wait, Wait, actor Jeremy Allen White, star of The Bear, denies that his character is in any way sexy. No, no, Carmi does not have sex. Nobody has sex. Uh, the most kind of sexually charged moment on the show is between a character called Marcus and some donuts. There's no... <laughs> and Peter Sagal, I don't know, sounds pretty hot to me. Join us for this week's news quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. All things considered from NPR News, I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. You may know that last year, NPR and All Things Considered turned 50. So did I while we're at it. But today we are here with another NPR milestone birthday. Our colleagues at Shortwave turn three tomorrow. And like Mary Louise, I also turned 50 last year. (laughs) Who knew? Shortwave is NPR's daily science podcast. And to celebrate, its hosts, Emily Kwong and Aaron Scott, are here to... Actually, we're going to let them explain what they're here to do. Welcome to G Golly Wizbowl, Shortwave's science quiz show. I also turned fifth. No, no. I turned three <laughs> yesterday. Happy birthday to us all. <laughs> so, hey, both of you, we're a daily science podcast that considers the science, and we believe that science is for everyone. We love to talk about space, climate change, physics, critters. We bring it all. And today, we have a few questions for you to make sure you've been paying attention in science class. Oh, boy. All right. Mm-hmm. Welcome. <laughs> Putting you in the hot seat. All right, Sasha, Mary Louise, let's start with a newsy question. Last week, the Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded for what kind of research? Uh, oh. Um, I have no idea, Sasha. Mm, no, I read the headline and now I realize I cannot tell you what exactly that physicist did. Okay. All right. I'm going to help you out. The answer to the question is quantum physics. Okay. So three scientists shared this award for experiments showing that two particles, let's say Mary Louise Kelly and Sasha Pfeiffer, could behave like a single unit even when far apart a phenomenon which is known as quantum entanglement. And that innovation is what is allowing for quantum computers, which tech companies are investing billions in developing. Cool. I talked about this with Jeff Brumfield. He saw this computer in real life, uh, and he explained to me why these computers are able to go so much faster with the help of Google engineer Marissa Justina. So first, imagine a regular computer is like a board game with square spaces, and you're trying to get to a diagonal space. Can I move diagonally like in checkers? No. No, you can't. You have to take two steps, one up and one to the left or something. So then imagine a quantum computer has hexagonal spaces. Oh, like Settlers of Catan. Yep, exactly. If you are on a hexagonal board or uh, a board with diagonals, then you can do that in one step. 
So with a quantum computer, it's a faster way to make the same exact moves. Get it? Huh? It's starting to make sense. Okay, all right. Yeah, this is the kind of science we like on shortwave. For us, it's all about maintaining curiosity for how things actually work. Next question. This is a completely different field. Uh, what is this animal? Is it a baby monkey? Getting really close. Here's our answer. Poor baby bonobo. Here's something Dr. Jonas Mukamba told us. He's the lead veterinarian at the sanctuary. Bonobo, ce sont les, les, les femelles qui dominent. C'est la femelle qui est euh, chef du groupe. What he's saying is that with bonobos, the females dominate, and that a female is always the head of the group. So this is a story that John Hamilton reported about research in a bonobo sanctuary and what it's teaching us about how people, how we evolved. I never would have guessed that was a bonobo, but I do speak French and he said the females are the boss. You heard it here first translated on All Things Considered. Uh, all right, I think this score is kind of one to zero. Are we going to give this point to Mary Louise? Uh, Our yes. producers are nodding yes. Let us keep going. Emily Kwong is the kind of host who loves heading out for shortwave, sometimes into very challenging situations. Which of the following has she not done for our show? Run a marathon, hung out with giant bears, crawled into a toxic cave looking for wriggling worm blobs, or recalled her past life in the circus? I'm going to give a practical answer, which is that Emily okay. did not climb into a toxic cave because NPR would have a serious employee <laughs> liability problem. Sasha, I most certainly did not, but you know who did? Who did? Right here, right here. So kind of <laughs> cheap, but no point for that one. It was a trick question. <laughs> it wasn't Emily. It was actually me. Um, it was for a series we did about science taking place in our public lands. And to your point, I had to put on a breathing apparatus <laughs> and crawl into this cave to find these little worms that only live in sulfuric water in the spring in this cave. And as you look, you can see clumps of worms everywhere. Wow, they really are everywhere. I mean, it's stunning. But I'm just going to collect a couple of worms real quickly. The worm blobs look like little blood-red sea anemones wriggling in the stream bed, and they live off the bacteria that in turn lives off the sulfur. So it's easy to see why scientists mm. look to places like this sulfur cave to dream up what life might look like on other planets. I hope, Aaron, you haven't had to file any workers' comp paperwork for injuries or toxins inhaled in that cave? Nope. My air started to run out, but I still had plenty to get out of the cave. It wasn't that big. So um, it was it was nothing but kind of fulfilling a childhood fantasy. I'd stood at the edge of this cave and looked in as a kid and always wanted to explore it. And uh, thanks to Shortwave, I got to go in. By my estimation, the score is one to one. You are tied. Aaron, next question. Perfect. Our next topic is moving on to genetics. Shortwave did an entire series on the different kinds of tastes that we called taste buddies. Mary Louise and Sasha, I would love if you would tell me what taste evolved to keep us from poisoning ourselves. My husband happens to be a seventh grade science teacher, and he oh. teaches genetics. Unfair so advantage like I... that should have been disclosed at the get-go. <laughs> Maybe a conflict of interest. I I'm feel detected. like I have to take a shot at this just because I live with a science teacher. Yes, please. Go for it. I am going to say that it it is bitterness that is the tip-off. 
You are correct. This is a scientist we talked to, Masha Neve, explaining it. So bitter, as the common paradigm says, it has to protect from poisons because in the world around us, there are plants and there are insects and there are lots of natural chemical compounds around us. And we kind of need these uh, receptors to say, okay, it's something new. Let's first be a little bit careful about it, a little bit averse to it. Okay, so I think our final tally is one to one. It's a tie. Which is We're all so winners. very NPR. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Participation trophies. Goodness. But seriously, we love the work you do on this show. It's an honor to be here. And this is truly what Shortwave is about. Deep dives into the science that makes up our universe and drives the day's headlines. Thank you and happy third birthday. To hear a fuller version of our quiz, you can check out today's episode of Shortwave. Shortwave is NPR's daily science podcast and Emily Kwong and Aaron Scott are its hosts. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies. At fidelity.com wealth, investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Cloudy skies from earlier today should turn into clear skies overnight tonight. Shouldn't be too chilly. Lows about 53. And then the weekend is looking pretty beautiful. Tomorrow, mostly sunny skies, right about 70. Then much the same for Sunday. Sunny highs around 67 degrees. 66 now in Boston at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Hillside School, offering a structured environment with a 5 to 1 student-to-teacher ratio for boys grades 4 through 9. Hillside graduates confident young leaders. On-campus and virtual open house will be held October 19th from 1 to 3 p.m. Hillsideschool.net. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. British Prime Minister Liz Truss has fired her finance minister and taken a U-turn on part of her economic policy. Now the question is, how will the global markets respond and how long will trust last? Today is Friday, October 14th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, grocery store chains Kroger and Albertsons took a bit of a hit on Wall Street today after Kroger announced plans to buy Albertsons. The deal would combine the two largest grocery store chains in the U.S. Women and girls in Iran continue their protests. Coming up, a writer draws parallels between today and a revolution in the country more than 100 years ago. 
It was the first of three major revolutions over the course of the 20th century. And in each one of those revolutions, women were at the forefront. These stories and more coming up, it's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The Justice Department is asking a federal appeals court to overturn a judge's appointment of a special master to review documents seized from former President Trump's Florida estate. It's the latest action in weeks of litigation over the scope of the special master who was assigned last month by a judge Trump appointed. Yesterday, the Supreme Court refused Trump's request to get involved. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with a group of Iranian women today to talk about ways the U.S. can help those protesting in Iran for basic human rights. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the women want to see the U.S. do more to support the protesters, even if that means pausing talks on reviving a nuclear deal. Journalist and writer Roya Hakakian says the protesters in Iran are not just seeking reforms. They want this regime to go. She says it would be a mistake for the U.S. to negotiate with a government that is shooting peaceful protesters. Our suggestion unanimously was to stop the nuclear talks until the violence stops. And, and I think everybody heard us loud and clear. Speaking in the lobby of the State Department, Hakakian says she and several other women made some specific suggestions on how the U.S. can help by providing Iranians with free Internet access and imposing sanctions on government officials leading the crackdown. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The top candidates for a Senate seat in Georgia are meeting tonight in their first debate. Republican Herschel Walker is challenging Democrat incumbent Raphael Warnock. Sam Greenglass with member station WABE reports voting in the congressional midterm elections wraps up in less than a month. This is the first and likely only time voters will see Warnock and Walker share a stage. It's one of the tightest contests in the country. And Republicans see the race as a top pickup prospect to retake the Senate. But Walker's campaign has spurred controversy from the start. And recently, he's faced scrutiny for reports he paid for an ex-girlfriend's abortion, despite his vocal opposition as a candidate to the procedure, with no exceptions. Warnock is fighting for a full Senate term after a narrow victory in 2021. But he's facing headwinds with President Biden's low approval ratings and inflation still high. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Savannah. Cheers at NASA after four astronauts splashed down in the Atlantic Ocean just off Jacksonville, Florida this evening, ending a nearly six-month mission aboard the International Space Station. The Crew-4 mission was the seventh time SpaceX sent humans into orbit. The astronauts, three from NASA and one from the European Space Agency, conducted science experiments, research, and maintenance on the orbiting outpost. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 403. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Teachers in Malden and Haverhill are threatening to go on strike Monday unless they reach contract settlements over the weekend. The Malden Education Association and the Haverhill Education Association accuse their school districts of not meeting the needs of students. Union members today voted to authorize the job actions. The teachers say they made proposals for more pay and staffing. The Malden and Haverhill school departments have not responded to our request for comment. Prosecutors in Middlesex County say they're now reviewing all the criminal cases that involve a Woburn police officer suspected of helping to plan the deadly white supremacist rally in Virginia five years ago. Officer John Donnelly has been placed on leave as Woburn officials investigate. Here's WBUR's Deborah Becker. 
Middlesex County District Attorney Marion Ryan says her office is reviewing all cases in which Donnelly was involved and will be notifying the defense attorneys in those cases. Yesterday, Woburn officials placed Donnelly on leave, saying they're investigating whether he attended and helped plan the 2017 so-called Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. D.A. Ryan says next week she'll convene an emergency meeting of her office's anti-hate, anti-bias task force. Reports in the Huffington Post say Donnelly played a key role in the rally and used an alias to post racist and anti-Semitic comments online. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren says new leadership is needed to oversee the MBTA. She made the comments at a Senate hearing in Boston on T-safety. Witnesses included T General Manager Steve Poftak and the chair of the state's Department of Public Utilities. WBR Simone Rios reports on the hearing chaired by Senator Warren. Warren cited a federal report that faults the T and the state agency that oversees it, the DPU, for a failure to prioritize safety and implement earlier federal mandates. And again, I quote, MBTA's executive management does not consistently ensure its decisions related to safety risks are based on safety data analysis or documented facts. Simple translation, when it comes to safety, the T's management is just making it up. Poftak testified the federal mandates will take more time to implement, and Poftak would not put a timeline on when Orange Line travel times will return to expected levels in the wake of this summer's shutdown. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. 66 degrees now in the Boston area, slow clearing tonight, down around the mid-50s. Then for tomorrow, pretty beautiful, sunny and comfortable, right about 70 degrees for a high. Sunday should be pretty much the same, mostly sunny skies, making it to about 67. We could see the return of the clouds on Monday. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 6.07. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Britain's prime minister is in a familiar position today, trouble. This time, it's Liz Truss, who's been in the job fewer than six weeks. Truss had to reverse a pledge on tax cuts after financial markets went haywire. At a press conference this afternoon, reporters repeatedly asked her if she would resign. She refused. For more on the latest turmoil in British politics, we turn to NPR's London correspondent, Frank Langford. Hi, Frank. Hi, Sasha. Frank, this was a very quick U-turn. How did Liz Truss get herself in this position? Remind us. Yeah, she ran on a platform of massive tax cuts that she, in fact, didn't really have a way to fund. And so financial markets became extremely worried about rising uh, UK government debt. The pound collapsed. People here saw the financial turmoil as really threatening things like their pensions, raising mortgage interest rates. So this was a crisis, Sasha, that actually was very palpable for the ordinary person. And today, Liz Truss fired her Treasury Secretary, even though he she had worked with him on this tax cut plan. They worked on it together. And she reversed course, saying she would actually raise corporate taxes. This is what she said. I have acted decisively today because my priority is ensuring our country's economic stability. I want to be honest, this is difficult, but we will get through this storm. Frank, what does this backtracking do to her party, the Conservative Party? 
Well, you know, this was the thing that helped get her elected by the rank and file in the party. And I think it really undermines the Conservative Party's brand, which has been economic competence. And you combine that with the scandals of Boris Johnson. Of course, he, he attended these parties during COVID lockdown, had to re resign back in July. And Conservatives are now 30 percentage point behind the opposition Labour Party with an election expected to come in 2024. I was talking to a guy named Tony Travers. He's a professor of government at the London School of Economics. And he doesn't think trust is long for uh, number 10 Downing Street. I think it's going to be very difficult for her to survive. And the reason for that is that many of her MPs, possibly almost all of them now, fear they might lose their seats at the next general election. And that is an incredibly powerful driver of their behaviour. The Conservative Party in Britain has been in power a long time, but it's really yeah. been churning through prime ministers lately. Why don't they last long? Well, I, I think that, you know, the old British brand of government was um, solid, but a bit boring. And we've had these four prime ministers really since 2016. And that started with a Brexit vote. I don't think that's an accident. Uh, Brexit split the country. It also split the Conservative Party. And the party's focus probably in some ways more on fighting each other than and less on govern, governing. And, you know, for years, the, the Conservatives didn't really have to worry too much about competition from the opposition Labour Party. This is how uh, Tony Travers put it. The fact that Labour had an unelectable leader for five years in Jeremy Corbyn encouraged a less disciplined approach to politics by the Conservatives. And that meant more infighting and maybe to some degree some of the behaviour we saw in Boris Johnson's government. Britain has an important part on the world stage. So how does this affect its effort to keep its place there? Well, I think all the turmoil over the last few years has really forced the country to look inward more, and it certainly damaged its global reputation. Um, but I don't think in the short run this turmoil really is changing international policy. There is a political consensus here on the war in Ukraine. Um, the UK has been one of the biggest arms suppliers, and I was just out in the south of England this week watching British soldiers training a couple of hundred Ukrainian soldiers to go back and fight the Russians back in the south and in the east of Ukraine. That's NPR's Frank Langford in London. Frank, thank you. Good to talk to you, Sasha. Women and girls in Iran are still not backing down. Coming up on a month after Masa Amini died in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police, Iranians continue to protest in the streets of cities and towns across the country. Iranian-American writer Reza Aslan has been pondering the moment. In a new piece for Time magazine, Aslan writes about women throwing off their veils, cropping their hair, and standing shoulder to shoulder with men to fight. Here's the twist. Aslan is writing there not about today, but about a different moment in Iranian history, one most Americans have probably never heard of, the Constitutional Revolution of 1905. He argues it's the closest parallel to what is happening in Iran today. Reza Aslan, welcome. Thank you for having me. So tell me briefly, what was happening in Iran around 1905, 1906? Who was protesting and why? In 1905, a band of educated young revolutionaries poured out onto the streets of Iran, backed by the clergy and by the business interests, in order to demand the creation of a constitution that would outline the rights and privileges of all citizens, and of course, the creation of a parliament, an elected parliament that would be able to pass legislation and in general, curtail the absolute authority of the Shah. This was the first democratic revolution in the Middle East, and it was the first of three major revolutions 
that Iran has experienced over the course of the 20th century. And in each one of those revolutions, just like today, women were at the forefront. But you argue, you come away from this and say, there's kind of two main lessons that you think we could learn from what was happening in Iran during the Constitutional Revolution more than a century ago. The first is about that you need a diverse coalition of people for anything to change. Explain. That's right. People who've been watching Iran or who understand Iranian history know that there have been countless uprisings and popular protests over the last hundred years or so. But the ones that had been able to elevate from protest to revolutions were the ones that were able to bring in a coalition of the educated middle class the clerics who maintain an enormous amount of control and power over the pious masses in Iran. And I'm talking not about the grand ayatollahs, but sort of the, the mid-level clerics and the seminary students. And then most crucially, the business class, the merchant class, the bazaari merchants. In 1906, in 1953, and in 1979, these three groups were able to come together. And that coalition is what ultimately resulted in radical change in the Iranian government. The other big takeaway that you see is what the rest of the world does, how the rest of the world is watching and responding. What parallels do you see there? Well, of course, in 1906, people came from all over the world with guns and bombs and actually physically joined the revolution. That's not really, of course, possible today, nor is it advisable. But the truth is, is that we have something even more powerful than guns and weapons. We have our voices. We have the ability to make sure that the cries for freedom that are coming out of Iran are actually heard and responded to by insisting that the Iranian government pay a price for this brutal crackdown. As an Iranian, what's it been like to watch everything happening today in Iran from, from outside, from afar? I've been watching Iran for 40 years now. Uh, I've been studying, you know, Iranian history going back all the way to the dawn of the 20th century. And I can tell you with confidence, I've never seen anything like this before. The, the power of these young women, girls, teenagers, children, frankly, who are willing to put their bodies in front of bullets in order to say that we cannot have any more of this. The only thing that will satisfy us is the downfall of this regime. I don't see how that force can be stopped regardless of the power or the violence of the Islamic Republic. That's the Iranian-American writer Reza Aslan. His new book is An American Martyr in Persia. Reza Aslan, thanks. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. A different kind of deal may be coming to a supermarket near you. America's two largest grocery chains want to merge as Kroger plans to buy Albertsons. And with soaring food prices, this consolidation should face tough scrutiny from federal regulators. And Paris Alina Seljuk reports. Put together, Kroger and Albertsons have nearly 5,000 stores, including Safeway, Ralph's, Harris Teeter, Fred Meyer. They employ over 700,000 workers. Their merger, worth almost $25 billion, is colossal, says Russell Redman, managing editor at Supermarket News. It basically will shake up the playing field. Grocery shopping has faced big changes. You no longer have to go to a traditional supermarket to stock up. There's big box stores, online delivery, even those fast-growing dollar stores. The reigning king of food in America is Walmart, which sells more groceries than Kroger and Albertsons combined. The two have now decided to join their regional forces into a national giant. 
we've never in the U.S. had a national supermarket chain. Rahul Sharma is a retail analyst at Neve Capital. He says in many ways that didn't seem to matter. U.S. grocery markets are pretty local and in any given region, smaller competitors tend to grab a sizable share. Historically, that's been more than enough. Neither Kroger nor Albertsons is a struggling retailer. They did really well in the pandemic. But Redmond points to something else that ballooned in the pandemic, online grocery shopping, which demands big investments from Kroger and Albertsons. Right now, the online model is not profitable. So you need the bigger scale to kind of build out that network and start bringing this model closer to profitability. Grocery chains operate on razor-thin margins, so Kroger and Albertsons argue that together they'll be able to slice costs and maybe negotiate better deals with suppliers. They promise to pass on some savings to shoppers and to their workers, though critics are not buying that. They worry also about the impact on smaller rivals, and first, the companies have to convince federal regulators. They're going to face a great deal more skepticism about the potential benefits of the consolidation. Bill Kovacic is a former Federal Trade Commission lawyer and chair who points out the deal will face review as growing food prices are driving up inflation. He also notes Kroger and Albertsons will face antitrust regulators in the Biden administration who have particularly pushed back against mega deals. They're going to get a much closer look than earlier transactions received in this sector. The companies are trying to get ahead of that scrutiny by promising to spin off dozens of stores in places where they currently overlap. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. We're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a closer look at question one on the Massachusetts ballot next month, the so-called millionaire's tax. We'll hear arguments for and against. It was a raucous week of trading on Wall Street, and it's ended with a downswing today. The Dow lost 1.34 percent. That's 404 points. It closed at 29,635. S&P lost 2.37 percent to close at 3583. The Nasdaq surrendered more than 3 percent today to end the week at 10,321. Boston area businesses say public transit challenges are hurting them. A new poll by the Boston Business Journal and Seven Letter finds one-third of local businesses surveyed say unreliable transit has hurt their efforts to hire and keep workers. More than 25 percent have let their employees work from home more often because of those reliability issues. Eighty percent say public transit is worse in Boston than it is in other cities. Business news is coming up on Marketplace in about 10 minutes. It's 6.20. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Hillside School, offering a structured environment with a 5-to-1 student-to-teacher ratio for boys grades 4 through 9. Hillside graduates confident young leaders on campus and virtual open house will be held October 19th from 1 to 3 p.m. Hillsideschool.net. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. 
Tonight, the Celtics play their final preseason game. They'll be in Toronto for a 7.30 matchup. Patriots say quarterback Mac Jones is questionable for Sunday's game against the Cleveland Browns. Jones is out with an injured ankle from nearly three weeks ago. If he is out this Sunday, then the rookie Bailey Zappi will get his second start of the season. In the forecast, look for slow clearing overnight tonight, temperatures about 53. And then for tomorrow, mostly sunny, right about 70 degrees. And pretty much the same thing for Sunday, another beautiful fall day. Sunshine, highs near 67. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's My Obsession with Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye, set to music by the Rolling Stones, now through October 16th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The first question on this fall's ballot in Massachusetts is a proposal to make high earners pay a higher rate of state income taxes. It's a so-called millionaire's tax. It would add an extra 4% tax to any income above $1 million. If voters pass it, the change will be locked into the state's constitution. WBR's Yasmin Ammer has done a deep dive into this ballot question and joins us now. Hi, Yasmin. Hi, Lisa. So let's start with the basics. How would the tax work? So this affects high earners. So these are people who make more than a million dollars. If this passes and I'm a CEO making two million, that first mill is going to be taxed at a 5% rate. That's our current income tax rate in Massachusetts. But my second million dollars will be taxed at 9% under the new system. And this isn't just for people with big salaries. It also affects these so-called one-time millionaires. These are people who win the lottery, say, or earn a big profit selling an expensive house or business. And a study from Tufts looked at taxes from 2019, and it found that fewer than 1% of households in Massachusetts made more than a million dollars. But Lisa, I want to emphasize something. This is a proposed constitutional amendment. So if it passes, it would be very hard to change. It is not unusual to ask wealthier people to pay a higher tax rate, meaning the more you make, the more you pay. The federal government does it. Do many states do it? It's not unusual. The federal government has a tiered tax system. The more you make, the higher your rate is. And most states do have that income tax system as well, the tiered one. Massachusetts is one of 10 states with a flat income tax. Ours is 5% no matter what you make. So how much, if it passes, could this net the state? So the first year, studies estimate that between $1.3 billion and $2 billion could be netted for the state. That $1.3 billion figure comes from a Tufts University study, and it accounts for people possibly leaving the state once this passes or or possibly hiding their taxes um, in in some other way. So uh, the $1.3 billion is a much more conservative estimate. Who is behind this proposal for a millionaire's tax, as it's called? The main coalition is called Raise Up. It's made up of unions, community, and religious organizations, and they like to call this the fair share amendment. They point out that Massachusetts is one of the top states when it comes to income inequality. That inequality has increased over the last decade, and they specifically want this tax to raise money for education and transportation. You know, money to fix, like, ailing school buildings or the MBTA, that's had issues. The communications director for Yes on One, Andrew Farnitano, was on Radio Boston this morning, and here's what he had to say. 
it's just common sense. When you look at our cities and towns, when you look at our transportation system, they all need more revenue. They all need more funding for schools and roads and bridges and public transportation. And what about the other side? Who are they and what are they saying against the tax? The other side is lots of big businesses and trades groups. They say this is just bad policy and it could push many high earners to simply leave the state. Dan Sensi is a spokesman for No on One, and he said this in the same Radio Boston interview. Given COVID, given the change in the workplace, the work from home mentality and the, and the new structure that businesses are creating here, it's much easier for high earners to go to New Hampshire, to domicile in Florida and still keep their job or keep where they're working. Opponents also say it doesn't make sense to raise taxes when the state is already having to issue refunds because it's collected too many taxes. I know you've talked about this before, but this obscure law called 62F, and it essentially limits how much the state can keep in revenues each year. And this year, Governor Baker announced the government will have to return almost $3 billion to taxpayers. Again, it's very rare that this happens, but it is happening the same year a new tax is on the ballot. And finally, opponents say there's no guarantee the extra money will go toward education or transportation. And that's because lawmakers will ultimately have the final say on where the money goes. WBR's Yasmin Ammer on question one on the November ballot. Thank you, Yasmin. Thank you, Lisa. This is one of the reports in a series WBR is bringing you on the four ballot questions in Massachusetts. Tune in next week for explainers on ballot questions two and three. Election Day is November 8th. You can vote early in person starting October 22nd. Mail-in voting is also an option. You can find key voting deadlines and information on the ballot questions in a voter guide on our website, WBUR.org. Young American workers without a high school diploma are the most likely to switch jobs these days. They're looking for higher pay and more stability, and getting a credential or an associate's degree can improve their prospects. But the cost is often prohibitive. From New York, reporter Alexandra Starr has this story about a program allowing some workers to enroll in these courses for free. A little more than a dozen men sit in a basement classroom in Harlem. They are studying Plumbing One at LaGuardia Community College. In the front of the room, a student demonstrates how to cut a pipe. <laughs> Stefan St. Louis joins the applause. He arrived in the United States from Haiti as a teenager almost two decades ago. He first enrolled in community college when he was 18. His mom, who worked as a home health aide, paid for it. My mom was working like two jobs. She was working like seven days, so I wanted something fast. You know, I wanted to make money to help my mom more on with the bills. A friend told him he could get hired at McDonald's. He left school and soon was working more than full time. I worked there for a while and I was also working at the airport at JFK. So I used to do two jobs, you know, for seven days, no break. His pay never topped $17 an hour. He wanted to go back to school to do a short course that could get him out of the cycle of service jobs. He didn't have the money for it, though. Then a friend told him about a program at LaGuardia that would allow him to study a trade, like plumbing, for free. You know, you only get those opportunities once in a lifetime. So that's why I wanted to do it. It is unusual. States like Florida and Virginia offer financial support to students earning certifications, but they don't give full rides. 
Kenneth Adams is president of LaGuardia Community College. He raised money from New York City's philanthropic organizations by pointing to the city's huge job loss after COVID struck. And so in the spring of 2020, think about it, the city lost a million jobs. And those were held, for the most part, by immigrants, people of color. LaGuardia ended up raising $15 million to offer scholarships like the one Stefan St. Louis is on. Adam says he's very typical. We're trying to attract students who want to go in a new direction and move from hospitality to healthcare. And there are jobs for people studying for a certification in the skilled trades. Madeline Schmidt has hired two LaGuardia-trained plumbers for her company, Long Island Clean Water Service. She wishes there were more of them. If you can work with your hands, whether it's electricians or plumbers, you have it made for your future. The federal infrastructure bill will create more of these kinds of jobs. Tony Carnevale is director of the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. The infrastructure bill is going to create a lot of good jobs. The estimates are between two and seven million jobs for high school graduates who get training. Now, for the most part, these jobs don't pay as much as positions that require a bachelor's degree. But people with some post-secondary education do see a financial payoff. Their lifetime earnings are almost 20 percent higher than for people with just a high school diploma. At this point, the federal government doesn't provide much financial support to students who want to pursue a skilled trade. But Carnevale believes that will change. We've come to the point where there's now bipartisan support for training. The votes are there. The earliest that kind of bill could pass, though, is in the next Congress, after the midterms. For NPR News, I'm Alexandra Starr. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. More at themusicemporium.com.